Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I will be looking at one of the works of Philip K. Dick, uh, beginning with the earliest ones he published, and then working my way through his entire career. Today, we'll be looking at the short story Medler. Medler is, a, I guess, a fairly typical disaster, disastrous time travel tale, if you will. Like the butterfly flight kind of kind of story. But the twist here is that it's not so much things done in the past that cause a problem, but more things that the time travelers bring back to the present. It also has a technology we've seen Dick use in various uh, stories. It's called the dip. It shows up in... It's actually a major plot point in Paycheck. And then you also have these type of time travel machines that allow people to look into the past, not necessarily bring things back, but um, in this case, it's closer to the technology we see used in Paycheck. All right, so Medler was first published in Future in the October 1954 issue. So if you're following along with this podcast, you know, we've been in kind of this 1953-1954 period for quite a while. He published, I think, around 50 stories, about half of his short stories, just those two years. And But we're getting to the end of the 1954. And then after that, the short stories come a little bit less frequently. 1955 has, I think, 12. And then after that, there's, there's even whole years where he didn't publish any, any short stories. And he starts to focus more on novels. Um, so we're, we're kind of working our way through to about the halfway point in, at least as far as Philip Dick's stories are, are concerned. But anyway, so October 1954 issue of Future. I'm not sure if he published in Future previously. Um, he, there was a few, mag- few magazines he published in quite a lot. I don't remember Future, though, but, you know, it's, it's, it's possible he published there before. He, he certainly published wherever he could in these years. So, page, uh, uh, well, you can find this one in Paycheck and other classic stories uh, by Philip K. Dick. Now, which is the first volume of the collected stories of, of Philip Dick. Um, now, the reason, again, the reason why you're going to get differences between, like, where these show up in the collected stories and, and how I'm presenting them is I'm doing it by order order publication. The collected stories, the five volumes, you can, you can buy pretty much anywhere. Now, they're published by Citadel, and there's been some really nice editions that were put out by other um, publishers recently. Which I might, I might actually have to buy them someday, but you know, I really had the chance. Now, the reason that they'll be different is is one reason is the main reason is they're kind of put together in those five volumes based on when Philip Dick wrote them, but also sometimes stories got moved around a little bit to allow certain books to promote different films or be connected to different films. So I think one of the good examples is Second Variety was moved to like the third volume. Not, you know, it was written actually quite early in his career, but they moved it to the third volume in order to take advantage of the fact that, you know, that was kind of a famous story, and I think it was a movie, Screamers. So anyway, that's how that was done. But anyways, let's get into this. So we got this technology called the dip, and its main use is 
by historians, and they use it to really observe and study historical phenomenon, right? And we've, again, seen this used before. We see it in Paycheck, and we have other examples, like in James P. Crow, where people are able to, you know, kind of, these time travel devices that allow people to observe the past. So the character Wood is showing Haston, another character, a new version of the dip that can, that can look into the future. Now, Haston is horrified by this. Not only is it illegal to dip into the future, it is very dangerous. Anything from the future brought into the present has the potential to radically affect future events. But what explains that the damage has already been done? <clears throat> now, Haston has been brought in because he's an expert in the use of the dips for historical research. The future dip, the dip into the future, was authorized earlier by the Political Science Council to predict the outcome of decisions and begin, and, and you know, basically to see how things are going to be used in a year, right? So you, you kind of set up a government policy and then you look ahead to see, is this a good policy or not? Will it work? Now, to protect the future timeline, the dip was designed to bring nothing back at all and only take these photographs from high altitudes. But the first reports from the future showed the world getting progressively better. There was less urbanization and a happier population. Now note that Dick here associates a better world with less urbanization, something we've seen in like John's world and a few other stories where he seems not to be a big fan of, of the urban. He likes crafters. He doesn't like automation. There's a lot about modern life that troubled him. So his happy world has less urban dwellers. But they went back again to review earlier periods with the dip, and they found that the future has changed. There was now evidence of massive war. They move ahead in the future a little bit farther, and the dip reveals that all human civilization will be destroyed. And their burden is really to investigate why this happened and hopefully prevent it. So they build a time car, which is kind of like a... Based, I think it's based on the same dip technology, but it's a time car that can send one person into the future. And Haston is the one charged with investigating this, going to the future, observe, and find out why whatever they did, whatever policy they implemented or whatever the dip did, figure out why it was the end of humanity. That's the task. Um, Haston begins, he moves 100 years into the future, but he sees no evidence of human civilization. Cows are no longer domesticated. Um, and while he's there, he gets attacked by these huge butterflies. The result of the butterfly attacks are immediate and violent, causing pain, they blacken his skin, but he's able to get into his time car and treat his injuries, and notices that it was just a small sting that, sting that did this. He was lucky more butterflies didn't attack him, or he probably would have been killed. He investigates the library for clues about what happened. Before another butterfly attack hits him, though, Haston manages to return to the time car with an armful of just these old newspapers, this kind of historical research. He plans to move ahead in another, well, I guess it wouldn't be historical research, it would be kind of future research, but you get the idea. Historical from the point of time he's in at the, at the moment. He then plans to move ahead another 50 years to make sure that the cause of the destruction of civilization were the butterflies. But the butterflies start to attack the time car with this coercive acid. Um, basically, he, does, he realizes that humanity will have no way to survive this butterfly, so he returns to his own time with this bad news. Hasten tries to explain what happens. The butterflies only attack humans and leave other living things alone, like he saw other wildlife. He saw actually formerly domesticated animals running free. They're not attacked by the butterflies, only humans. So he thinks, or would thinks, with this information, maybe humanity can stop the butterflies. A soldier notices that the time car has many cocoons, 
most of which are already empty. A sense, what this shows is that the butterflies have been released into the present time. My, my good friend Richard, uh, who comments on my posts or my podcast, has been constantly reminding me that he need to talk more and more about what's what, what is he trying to talk more about entropy and cyclicalism in Philip Dick's work. And I, I don't disagree with them. I, I know that's not where my focus has been, but he's certainly right that cyclicalism is a theme in a lot of his work. In fact, when I go back and finish up my series on history, there's really three models of three foundations to his theory of history. One is the frontier, one is stagnation, and then one is really the cyclical or the return or return. And we see elements of that, you know, not just later in his work where it's really evident, but in works like this and the crawlers had a bit of that cyclicalism too. Um, but here we have it in the sense that the butterflies are brought back to their origin point, right? And so some of this time travel has created this loop in which uh, this, this, you know, the time traveler is bringing back the cause of the human's destruction that which, which was the reason he was sent out to investigate in the first place. So the meddler is a time travel story that does turn around some conventions. It's not going back in time and messing stuff up that you get in the butterfly effect, um, it's a, but it's it's like a future voyage, like the time machine. But it it kind of combines these two ideas. The one is that time travelers can mess things up and and cause the the present to be horrible or cause some future destruction. But it combines it with this kind of forward going and seeing you know this interest in what humanity is going to turn out to be. Um, I'm really interested in this this the role of like the bureaucracy here too and how the government is trying to trying to I guess make things better by using time travel to see if their policies work out in the end. Now maybe it's it's more cynical in practice, but at least there's the idea here that you know you improve democracy by having you know a way to look in the future, right? So you see, will Obamacare be successful? And you can look in the future and then measure it, and people vote based on on what they see. That, that's you know that's kind of interesting. Now, anyways, the standard story of time travel leading to the end of humanity really involves someone going back in time, changing some insignificant event, you know, and, and the story we get is the butterfly, it's the butterfly effect, but the story is The Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury, which was written just a couple years or published a couple years before this. So Dick probably knew it, uh, and he's reforming Bradbury's story in a way that's kind of interesting by showing how changing the future can lead to the same kind of catastrophe. Now, it's interesting here that given The Sound of Thunder being published, the characters in Dick's story here aren't that worried about messing with the past. They don't really think they can change the past. They don't think it's, it's a problem. The prohibition with changing, is with changing the future. The technology of the dip is an interesting development in the technology of time travel. In this, in this story, we see dips being really used in the bureaucratization of historical research. Right, the questions and the mystery of history gets taken away because we can just go back and take a snapshot. So I guess historical research becomes much more easy, much more mechanized, much more automated, much more technical, in a way maybe even more scientific. So you lose some of the art of historical writing and research. If the past can be studied directly, there's really no need for debate among historians. Um, now, I don't know if that's fully true. I, I suppose there'd still be arguments about how to interpret things, but a lot of the kind of history's mysteries would be lost. And it might purge out some really stupid ideas, like did aliens, 
build the pyramids, but some other interesting kind of question marks would be gone, and that's something that might be regrettable. Now, historical research here has been incorporated into the state to me to serve it. Well, we've seen that before in a story from around this time ex exhibit piece where historical research has been bureaucratized. Now, in this story, Dick subtly warns that the danger of technology in academic research is pretty much the same as in any other application. He, he really fears technology and automation and really allowing the machine to trump human mind and potential. It takes away the mental autonomy of people and gives it to machines. Now, we are, you know, I don't know how far we are from computers complete, complete, completing historical analysis. Historians have always, or not always, but often use machines, and today they, they use machines to process data, especially the more data-focused historians, you know, the, the cleometric people, they're called cleometric, cleo history and metrics. There are a handful of people to do this, and their, their research has not always been looked at too kindly. The most famous example would be like the, the book Time on the Cross. I, I'm forgetting the author's names by now, but this is a book about American slavery, and you know it really he used a, like they used I think it was two writers who did it, but they looked at the historical records of plantations, um, and they talked about things how you know plantations had to you know they really applied a lot of economic theory and incentivization ideas into their analysis of slavery, and I think the most famous example of where people think he, these guys went wrong was in how they talked about punishment and discipline. And they made the argument that it wasn't that common and their records kind of showed that whipping wasn't as common as, you know, most people think about slavery assumed it would be. And this was really attacked as really kind of a dehumanizing look at the experience of slavery. You can't reduce something like, you know, a savage beating to, you know, or whipping, especially, you know, if you see your father being beaten or your mother being beaten. You know, even if it didn't happen every day, it's it's such a traumatic event. And, and by looking at it just by numbers, hist you know, these historians were criticized. So maybe going too far in just reducing everything to, to numbers and facts and data. I don't know, but that's that might be the trend. We're, we're in this era of big data, and I see no reason that historians would not use this. But how far do we get that you just kind of plug in historical data into a computer and you get results pumped out the other end? Now, slightly more ominous is it's not clear what the role of the histo-research government agency really is. What's, what's it trying to do? We understand why they want to look into the future to try to find out how policies turn out. But, but what's, why go back? We know history has an important role in ideological training of people through mass education. World history and Western civ classes often implicitly defend the state, for instance. This is a common thing that I've been thinking about once in a while. I you know, I'm thinking about it every day, but you know, someday I might like to write up like a, a world history that's not state centered. Um, but even now, you know, you might have the first day of class where you talk about pre prehistoric people or Paleolithic people. But pretty soon you start to talk about states and the rise. There were first states in Egypt and Mesopotamia and Indus Valley and the Yellow River and how they developed into empires. And your focus is kind of always on the states or institutions. Like when we start to talk about religion in these classes, it's really the world religion that we care about, the most institutionalized. There's all these things that humans do that aren't state-centered that don't always get the same attention by teachers of world history. And I've been one of them from time to time. So they kind of defend the state implicitly by suggesting that the rise of states is part of the natural evolution of humanity. 
all I'm trying to say here is that history does have this ideological function, right? And certainly the origin of history, historical research, was in defending and defining and explaining the rise of nation states. The ruling council here in the story is called the Political Science Council. So again, we got a kind of an academic, like academia co-opted by the state, perhaps, or incorporated into the state for certain functions. Now, it's safe to say that the bureaucratic regimen described in the Medler is a variation of the philosopher king's idea presented maybe in Plato's Republic. Now, I don't know if that's quite what Dick had in mind, but there is a lot of academics and a lot of academic research being done through the state. So maybe we do have kind of a meritocracy or a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, the reign of the philosopher king. But these academics prove no more capable in using their power responsibly than other people. Unable to be content with collecting evidence the old-fashioned way, the political science council demands knowledge of the future. The results, as the story shows, are catastrophic. More than a time travel story, therefore Medler is an assault on the pretensions of academia and its often undemocratic tendencies, the tendencies of academics to be bold and reckless and indifferent to the consequences of their research, to not be very thoughtful about you know, what their research might do. To a certain degree, all academics have a bit of the mad scientist in them. You know, they're often very devoted, uh, often to the degree of maybe abandoning their family or not giving their family the attention they need. But even more so, they, you know, they pursue certain things with this, this fury and things that other people may think are banal. But they go at them in depth and write these huge books and things. And usually it doesn't really matter much. But, you know, in this story, we see academics doing things that actually hurt people. So I don't know if there's a warning here about giving academics who are a bit nutty too much power. Certainly if you spend time in an academic department, you know that these aren't the people you'd want to run a just society. I've spent a lot of time in academic departments and, you know, I'm not really a professor full-time anymore, but often these are not the kind of people you want running a society. Um, often very blunt and petty and greedy and jealous. Um, anyways, uh, that is, that's the story of the, that's the story of Medler. It's, it's a good time travel tale. It's fun and, you know, time travel destroys the world. We, we've seen that before, of course, but it's, it's done in an interesting way. And I think the most important part of the story is how it looks at academia and the academic and the, and the scholar and how dangerous it might be to put these types of people into positions of authority. Well, I guess that, I guess that does it. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, if you have any comments, uh, if you have any ideas, if you have any responses to this uh, this story, if you've read it, um, I'd love to hear your point of view about it. Please comment below. Um, but if not, just keep listening, and I'll be back shortly in a couple days with another one of Philip K. Dick's stories that we can talk about. Um, again, thanks for listening. See you next time. My tired thoughts once on That living dies, that living dies, that living dies